Hey, everybody, I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Corporate Drinker, a punk rock HR production. In each episode, Corporate Drinker explores the intricate ties between work culture and alcohol. Now, there's no judgment here. The podcast tells stories of regular people like you and me who may have complicated relationships with drinking. I'll talk to leadership gurus, therapists, addiction specialists, and even HR and marketing professionals who have hot takes on how and why alcohol and work have become so interconnected. And of course, I'll speak to brilliant people with big ideas on cultivating genuine cultures of inclusion and belonging so leaders and employees can enhance their work environment and reduce unnecessary conflict with or without alcohol. On this episode, I'm chatting with Mary Ellen Slater. She's the founder and CEO of RepCap, which is a content marketing agency focused on insurance and financial services and human resources technology. But more importantly, she's my friend and we've been to a lot of conferences together and that's what we're on the show talking about today. What it's like to be a lady just trying to have a nice night out with your girlfriends at a conference and to have really stupid things said to you about drinking. So if you're into all that, well, sit back and enjoy this conversation with Mary Ellen Slater on this week's Corporate Drinker. Hey, Mary Ellen, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, we've uh, known each other for a long time. I mean, I feel like we got decades on us at this point. And we've had some great conference experiences and some weird ones. And I remember you telling me about a crazy conference experience that you had, well, I don't know, maybe eight years ago now. So why don't, why don't you tell me that story? Yeah. So it's interesting. I was like, drinking has always been a core part of what happens at conferences. And I'm going to say as somebody who goes to a lot of different industry conferences versus a journalist and now as a, as a business owner, HR people drink the hardest. (laughs) HR people drink in a way that would make finance bros on wall street blush. Like they could not hang. Like that's all I'm saying. I'm just wait, wait, wait. Do you, do you know? Do you know why that is? Like, do you have a theory? I do. So I tell people it's because HR is they're, they're the sin eaters of corporate America, and like they spend so much time being so buttoned up and like worrying about decorum and keeping other people under control and like dealing with other people's problems. My theory is that when they're then together, like in their own bubble, and they're not surrounded by the other people that they're supposed to be keeping in line, they they just let loose. It's like, it's the pressure valve. Yeah. Yeah. I have a second theory, which is around also some gender dynamics in our industry, which is that most HR women, somewhat unusual inside corporate America, it's more likely that an HR person is going to be a woman, like your leader, your decision maker. And then we have these vendors, like the tech vendors and the heads of the sales dudes are guys. And you wind up having these, I often feel like these, like these, these wooings of customers feel more like dates to me than in any other industry that I've ever seen, because there's just a very weird dynamic that sort of emerges with these men buying these women purses and taking them to dinner. Yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> the coach purse and the Michael Kors like, purse was a thing for a long time. Yeah. 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 And then we went to coach. It just depends on the age of the lady that you're trying to woo, right? Like, you, know, like, you got to learn about her style preferences. And I just think that that creates some, it's like, it's like these men with money to spend to get women who can you know, make decisions about they have something that they want. <laughs> like, you can just fill in the blanks there. But it's just like, I think that actually contributes to it. I think it winds up feeling 
I think in other situations, in other industries, it's more male sales, male decision maker, and it changes. It's different. They go play golf or whatever. I'm I'm laughing because also it's because we're so dang sexy in HR. I mean, also, <laughs> also, yeah, it's because the haircuts really. Oh, it's for sure, for sure. And the French manicures that are coming back like crazy. Everything old is new again. Oh my goodness. All right. So you and I went to this one conference. I was not around when it happened, but tell me, tell me what happened. So as I run a marketing agency and part of my job at these events sometimes is actually organizing events for my clients. So we will host a party because this is actually a pretty critical piece of how business gets done. So you host a party and then we will partner with a bunch of different people um, to help pay, you know, sort of to pay for this. You know, if it's a big company, they'll just have their own party. Little companies will all sort of pitch in and have, have their own thing. We help them organize this. So I had organized one of these parties at HR Tech and I had a few different sponsors. And I was there and, and, you know, at that time, I also was pregnant with my younger child. And I mean, barely pregnant um, to the point where, I mean, the only other person that knew that I was having a baby was that baby's like parent. No one else knew. I was still in the morning sickness kind of phase. I mean, this, I mean, it's that early, right? And so I go to I go to my party that I'm hosting. I'm dressed nice. I've got my makeup, got my hair. I mean, we go all out for these things. And I'm what I decided to do that night to head off any kind of conversations about it. I was just drinking seltzer and lime. And I thought, if I'm drinking this, I mean, I had to think about this. It's like, well, if I, people see me not drinking, they're going to wonder why. And I don't want to deal with whatever. So I had the drink in my hand. I'm just going all night drinking seltzer and lime. And I had someone come up to me, my industry, somebody that I know well. And I mean, I think well of. And he just looks at me and he goes, what are you drinking? What are, what, are you pregnant or something? And, and was really loud about it. And I'm just like, I just kind of looked at it. Like, I honestly, you know, kind of froze. Like, and I was like, and I sat there for a second and then he stopped yelling and I was like, actually, yeah. And he stopped and he apologized and he felt so bad. But like, it was like, dude, you just went on for like seven minutes. <laughs> I am still speechless hearing this story because there's, you talked about gender dynamics just a second ago, and there's really something fascinating about a man who we love and we adore. He's a nice human being, really feeling entitled to enter into your space, to question what you're drinking, and then to then take on this conversation, right? As if he's entitled, as if it's okay to talk about your body, your position in this world, what you're doing with your life, and just to make it into a fun thing. Like I'm still, I still feel terrible about this experience for you. And also I'm mad that he knew before I did. What the hell? Right, like exactly, exactly. But I, <laughs> because that was, that was the thing for me. It's like, well, this is a person that I would have wound up telling probably three weeks later, Right. But I wasn't ready to tell people. And I was already trying to like be there and be professional and do my work, you know, and carry on with all that. And like I that was information I wanted to to hold close to the best. And like, but and again, in his case, this was it was he was excited. It wasn't like he was like, oh, you're pregnant. I mean, he was like, <laughs> well, I want I want to go back a second because you talked about how you pregame this. Right. And so many people in recovery have to pregame things or who are LDS or whatever, just don't want to deal with people asking questions. Right. They talk to the bartender or they have a drink in their hand the whole night that isn't alcohol. And I just wonder what it felt like to have to do that, because that's a burden on you to do that. Yeah. And, and the fact that I did it and it still didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And it was like people are like, "That's not your drink, girl." Oh, <laughs> all right, all right. So I mean, it's disappointing in a lot of ways, and it's also but it is. It is a thing. I think you have to think about if you you have to decide if you're going to because people ask these questions, and I think that part of it is if you're just going about in the world and you're not drinking, it's like when other other people start drinking they lose their inhibitions. Yeah, yeah. And so true. they start asking you those sorts of questions that they would never ask you if you were just sitting around at the conference table. Totally, totally. Um, and the place you know, in the physical place is different too, right? And that can be disinhibiting. So even if no, even if you're not like drinking heavily, the fact that you're not in the four corners of an office, right, means that you're out somewhere else and we want to relate to people on a human to human level and we go for it sometimes too I mean, much. I so. mean, honestly, I'm kind of jealous of the Mormons because they... They get to say that like all the time and it's just like yeah no i don't drink religious like religion and they just walk away but i mean i grew up southern baptist but you know it's similar kind of vibe but not quite but you know i at least it's like an all the time thing i think the challenge for for women you know when they're pregnant or nursing or have something you know, that 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 particular moment or whenever you have you're in recovery like you're like hey you know what my drinking's not really like doing me any favors right now and i'm like it's when you change I think that's when it gets really awkward because it's not, it's not your baseline anymore. So it stands out. So if someone is LDS and they're like, no, I don't drink. It's like, I know when I have events and I know that there, if I look down my guest list, I mean, Laura, you and I posted a ton of parties together, right? It's like, I look down my guest list and I see that I have multiple people in there that I know don't drink for religious reasons, um, which I'm more likely to know than frankly, if that I know they don't drink for health reasons, right? I make sure that there are decent mocktails on the menu. You do. You do a really good job of that. And I wonder how this fits in, especially this experience now that you've had fits into your business gatherings for your own employees, right? It's another thing to entertain other people for other reasons. But when you create this intimate community of people, you work together on a regular basis. How do you make sure that you live your values on inclusion, right? Because so many companies say we believe in an inclusive environment and they almost forget alcohol. Mm hmm. Right. And I think that, so this is, this is interesting. I do take this into account. So one, now, you know, this is eight years later, I drink a lot less than I used to for reasons that have nothing to do with pregnancy or nursing. Right. I just, it just doesn't feel good in my body. You know, I don't like the feeling I can have one drink and it's okay. And it's fun. The second drink is not fun. And so like, I'm pretty measured about that myself. I don't drink most days. And when I do drink, it's one drink. So it's pretty measured when I'm planning events. I do try to, I look through the actual guest list. So one, if there's specific people whose needs I know I need to meet, like, you know, I think about a party that we had at Sherm last year where I knew that some of my co-hosts in particular were vegetarians. So to me, making sure that you have non-alcoholic options, and I don't just mean like, yeah, they can get a Diet Coke. I mean, like something tasty that is non-alcoholic on the menu, that to me is inclusive. If you have a tasty vegetarian food, I'm not just like, yeah, well, you can pull the meat off of that bread and best of luck. You know, we, we sit down and we make sure that there are things that the most common. So I would say I try to account for the most common scenarios, which should include not drinking alcohol and they should include not eating meat. Yeah, yeah. Right? Well, that wait. should be baseline. But how about your company retreats, right? Do you take that same approach that way? Absolutely. 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 We do it for our retreats, any corporate events that I host. Like we try to, um, inside the company, um, Jane, who runs our HR stuff, she actually has a, when somebody comes on board to work at the company, there's a questionnaire they get through Gusto that asks them about if they have any food preferences or, you know, restrictions. Like I actually don't, and here's the other thing is I don't make anybody prove to me 
why they can't have gluten. Like, I don't care about that. Just tell me, like, I'm gluten-free. Okay, cool. Nice to know. I don't drink alcohol. Like, okay, cool. It's like, I don't do coffee. It makes my face itch. Okay, awesome. So that when we, we collect that information up front, and then she uses that information when we have gatherings to make sure that people's, since I know those specific people, it gets really easy to make sure that you have those options. I think it's trickier in public events where you don't know who all is going to be there. Yeah, that makes sense. But you do, you should still think about the most common situations, which is give me a tasty non-alcoholic beverage. Cause I'm willing to bet it at any given event at this point, there's probably 20 to 30% of the people at your party that are avoiding alcohol. Oh, for sure. And I think there's been this movement coming want to. Yeah. This movement coming out of the pandemic where we didn't survive a pandemic to continue to feel so terrible. And also I have really renegotiated my relationship, not only with alcohol, but with work. If I'm going to get hammered, it's going to be with people I truly enjoy. Not like not with some strangers in Vegas that I don't particularly like and wouldn't write me a check if they saw me hammered. Right. So there's been this renegotiation reevaluation. And I think to your point, a lot of people are going through that right now. There's a real reckoning on how we want to live going forward. So that smart, inclusive way of thinking makes sense to me. Are you seeing other organizations do this? I do. I think and they tend to be ones that promote the idea of inclusion and belonging in their cultures. Um, and they have a particularly forward-thinking person that's either running their events planning um, or they've got consultants who are helping them with that, right? They've got a good events partner that's helping with that. Um, I find that it's an interesting thing because I find that it's something that everybody just assumes this is normal. And then you get that one person that raises their hand and said, how about we just don't? <laughs> and and like, and then suddenly goes, oh God, that would be amazing. Because, you know, I think the other ways, and I guess I don't want to make this like completely gendered, but the other thing that often happens too, the happy hour, right? Like I, we, we're talking about this in the context of events, but now that people are returning to the office, right? And we're, are we returning back to the, the after hours happy hour? Like there's this idea that we want people to co-work and be together and like spend time together in a more relaxed setting. And the default has always been the happy hour, which has been problematic for people in recovery, people who are pregnant or nursing. And it's been problematic, frankly, with, for anybody that has outside responsibilities, like family responsibilities, such as their kids, you know, that they've got to rush home and pick up. And so my hope is that um, I'm seeing a little bit of conversation and movement around the idea of like, can we do this? If you want me to come back to the office and you want us to get all this collaborative FaceTime, can this event be during work hours and can it be sober? Oh, I like that. I like it a lot. You know, I'm going to throw another thing in there for you that I've heard through some of this research that the happy hour is elitist and classist, and it puts a tax and an undue burden on workers who can't afford to participate. Because a lot of us may assume a happy hour is company funded. It is usually not. It is usually not. It's a tax on people who may have student loans, may have family, frankly, may just not want to spend their money that way, but feel compelled to shell out 15, 20, 30, 40 bucks every time they go out just to be included in a conversation about work and to be seen as someone with potential promotional opportunities. So I don't know. I mean, you're very aware of class. Does that resonate with you? No, it does. It does. But I, I think, again, just it's also just the time. It's just the time of like being able like, oh, yeah, after work, I don't I can't have an extra babysitter who can hang out. Like, so if you if we found that moving it during the workday solves both of these problems. Right. Because if you want us to have this FaceTime, then do it during the work hours and pay for it. 
All right, but we're talking about people then as self-leaders, CEOs of their own lives who are brave enough to implement some of these boundaries or to have some of these conversations to change corporate thinking. And I, you know, I think we're in an era of scared economic times, right? Scaredonomics, I've heard the term used, where people are just too afraid to push back because the pendulum has swung excessively in favor of employers. So do you have any advice or any thoughts on how you broach the topic with someone in your office so that it doesn't become that undue burden on time, which is a currency in and of itself? Mm -hmm. Well, so I'm going to push back. One, I think some of this, um, on the, the scaredonomics and the idea that the employer has all this power right now, that's actually only in a handful of sectors, I think. That's like something, I think it's the tech sector, right, where we had all these layoffs. Um, I think that workers are still in the driver's seat. If you look at where unemployment is and you look at, it depends, it's kind of sector by sector and job by job. So one, I think there is a propaganda movement that it is, is designed to make workers feel disempowered because if they feel disempowered, they are. So one. You used to have lots of power too. My favorite way to counter this is actually, I'm going to borrow the give credit to this idea for Allison Green. Um, if anybody follows Ask a Manager, she has a pretty much in these situations, she always comes back with what I think is the perfect advice actually for lots of things of this nature, which is don't do it by yourself. So what you will find is that you might, everybody's just going along with this. And I promise you that at least a third, maybe half of the people showing up at this happy hour who are doing this thing because they think they have to do it, don't want to be doing it. And so if you can, instead of raising your hand by yourself, if you think if I say something alone, this isn't going to work, you know, I'm going to be punished, there's going to be some kind of backlash, go get a, at least two other coworkers to come and say with you and say, look, we have been talking about this and we are finding that this is our experience. We would like to suggest that we do something in the daytime, like, and we can do something in the afternoon. Maybe this could be a lunch event. Like, because honestly, moving it from the happy hour to lunch automatically ups the like sobriety. I mean, theoretically, 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 I mean, I mean, I know the whole three martini lunch thing hasn't. I mean, most of us are fighting to have lunch breaks at all. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, much less three hour lunch breaks where we have like three drinks. Um, so if but you push it back and suddenly we're all having iced tea, like there are other nice ways to give that good experience with people to people without that happy hour thing. So band together, basically go find the other like minded coworkers who believe, who agree with you, come up with a solution that you'd like to propose and make your bid. It's going to be a lot harder if you come in with a specific, instead of just like, I don't like these happy hours, you know, with your arms crossed, like, do I have to go? That makes you look like not a team player. A person who shows up with four other people that says, hey, this isn't really working for us. And we have an idea about how we can make this better. That's, they get what they want. Yeah, that's a problem solver and a self-leader right there. Well, Mary Ellen, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your thoughts. Uh, thanks again for having a quick chat with me about work drinking and corporate drinking. The Corporate Drinker Podcast is a special series brought to you by Punk Rock HR. If you like what you heard, head on over to your favorite streaming platform and leave a five-star rating and a review. You can also head on over to punkrockhr.com for news, information, show notes, and all the good stuff related to Corporate Drinker. This episode was expertly produced and edited by my friends at Emerald City Productions with special help from Danny and Michael. That's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. We'll catch you next time on the Corporate Drinker Podcast.